Plato, Kant, Nietzsche, Buddha, Confucius, Rousseau, Aristotle, Bastiat, Molinari, Cicero, Hegel, Hobbes, Kant, LL Cool J. The contemporary philosopher sits on the social and political branch of the Western tradition. He began releasing treatises in 1985 after collaborating with Def Jam. Radio was his first. Two years later, bigger and deafer. But 1989's Walking with the Panther was too poppy, said the Philosophical Review. So much empty fluff, pondered the British Society for Feminology. Dialectica wouldn't even look at it. His fourth commentary, however, returned him to the top. Both the album and its most famous song were titled Mama Said Knock You Out. The single famously begins with Don't Call It a Comeback, I've Been Here for Years. Singing that tune these days are communism, Marxism, and socialism. In this, the 17th episode of Making Sense, Jeff Snyder explains how to understand their philosophy and why their recent popularity is not a comeback despite the doctrine's body of work. Marxism was never gone. It was waiting for the club of mostly wealthy nations to reach the end of their capitalist potential. Well, a 13-year depression on par with the 19th century's long and the 20th century's great depressions is making a good case. So then, how to counter the argument? But that's for the back half of the show. First, a catch-22 like paradox in bond markets. Safe sovereign and risky corporate bonds both display falling yields. Why? We look back to the last worldwide depression for answers. Then, yield curve control. This podcaster has a feeling it'll be the must-have toy for central bankers by Christmas. We look back at the U.S. experience with the policy during the 1940s. Then, Marx, Lenin, and Mao take the stage, grab the mic, and start spitting. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and joining me, as always, is Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. Jeff, paradox. My favorite book of all time that I've ever read was Catch-22, and that book is all about absurd paradoxes. And one of them that's taking place right now in the markets is that we're seeing sovereign bonds, very low yields, very low yields right now. But at the same time, we're seeing corporate bonds also exhibiting very low yields. And those two signals seem to be contradictory, at least to me. They seem to be signaling we have an illiquidity crisis. Everyone's running for something safe, the sovereign bonds. At the same time, we have a bubble. They're, the, they're running for the corporate bonds. They want to make money. Is there, is there a catch-22? Is there a conflict, a paradox? What am I missing? Well, I, you know, again, we're, we're going back to Milton Friedman's interest rate fallacy. And really, the corporate bond market, even the junk corporate bond market, the riskiest parts of the corporate bond market, are consistent with the interest rate fallacy, even though it's, it's not maybe readily apparent to most people. When, when we introduce the interest rate fallacy, I think I think people get it when you start using by using the you know, U.S. Treasuries or government bonds, something like that. You now you say when demand for the most the safest, most liquid assets out there is high, therefore their price is high and their yield are low. 
that makes sense. Okay, yeah, the, the, the system, the liquidity in the system, the monetary sufficiency, all those things probably aren't very good. And that's what's driving people into the safest, most liquid instruments. That, I mean, that makes intuitive sense. But then you look at, I guess you pointed out, the junk bond market, especially things like leverage loans, CLOs, and yields on those things are falling too. They're very low. In fact, they're historically low. And that, that's a much harder case to make, especially intuitively, where people think, well, that's got to be a credit bubble, right? I mean, that's the Fed pushing people into all of these risky places. And that's consistent with the idea of an over-aggressive monetary policy being only too successful. So it seems like the two things are at odds with each other. You have low rates on riskless assets, safe assets. That's, that's definitely illiquidity, liquidity preferences. But then you also have low rates on very risky assets. And you think, well, that's credit bubble. So how can we have the two things going on at the same time? And it's, it's, a, really, it's a really good question. I think it's something we probably should talk about to a certain degree. Well, Jeff, we've discussed the interest rate fallacy before, but maybe we have some new listeners, new viewers. Can you talk a little bit about who first brought the interest rate fallacy to our attention? And then after you're done, let's go and find that answer in the 1920s that will help us understand what's happening right now. Yeah, a lot of it has to do with what we're taught, what economics teaches us, and what gets reinforced, especially in the financial media. And that is low rates are stimulus. And that's what I mean, the Federal Reserve, before quantitative easing, before the 2008 crisis, that's what they did. Alan Greenspan would lower the federal funds rate and say that was consistent with stimulating the economy. And it sounds like that should be the case, right? Lower rates means it's cheaper to borrow, therefore more borrowing. It's very intuitive, and it seems to make a lot of sense. But what Milton Friedman pointed out in 1967, so 53 years ago, was that was precisely the opposite of all historical experience. When rates go down, that's the opposite of stimulus. That's the market telling you there is no stimulus, that there's a lack of money and a lack of liquidity in the system. Because again, what the market participants are doing are holding to the safest, most liquid instruments because of the lack of ins uh, the insufficient liquidity in the system. Is it a two-step process? So the central authority lowers the interest rate, and if the circumstances are amenable, people will borrow more. That's stimulative, theoretically. But then the market is telling us, no, that's not happening. Yeah, it's, it, again, we're, we're taught to think of this as a very top-down system. The Fed says the market does, right? The Fed lowers its federal funds rate. That lowers all the rest of the interest rates, as Greenspan's Fed said along in June 2003. You know, are interest rates independent? I don't think they are. So what that means is the Fed lowers all the interest rates. That's what we're taught. Therefore, that's stimulus. And you're right, Emil. This is a two-step process. And in fact, the Fed lowering interest rates is usually the second part of the process. The first part of the process is the market saying, we've got a monetary problem here. And what happens historically is the Fed comes in afterwards and tries to deal with it. So the low rates are actually the market saying big problem. And then the Fed lowering its rates, other than you know, some minor adjustments, but you know, like 2008, for example, the Fed lowering its rates then, that wasn't stimulus. That was the Fed trying to catch up to a liquidity event that was already well underway. So even then, it was, a, it was the market saying we've got a liquidity problem, therefore rates are going lower. That's the fallacy. Low rates are not stimulus. They're a signal that money has been tight in the real economy. 
and consequently opposite too, right? Like the 1970s, the great inflation was, was, part, was marked by double digit interest rates, interest rates rising and, and extremely high. It's precise, as he said in 1967, it's precisely the opposite of what we're taught. Let me split up the rates some more. So the central bank is lowering the short-term rates, and those are theoretically supposed to then flow through the rest of the yield curve. And when you're saying low rates are not stimulative, you're saying low rates are signaling the long-term rates, right? That let's say the 10-year benchmark rate is saying, no, it's not stimulative. What you have just done, if it was, it would have been rising. Is is that correct? There are two different rates we should be looking at, central yeah, bank and, and market response. Yeah, there's two different parts of the yield curve. There's actually different parts of the yield curve, but you know, two major sections of the yield curve, the short-term, long-term. They meet somewhere in the middle in the belly of the curve. But even the short-term rates, which are heavily influenced by monetary policy, if short-term rates don't respond much either, it's the same thing. It's the market saying we want liquid, liquid, liquid. And so that's really the, the main point, whether it's the short end or the long end. The long end is really, okay, what happens in, uh, what are the consequences of a situation where short-term rates are probably around zero for a long period of time? Well, obviously that's not a good period. That's not a good situation over the intermediate and long-term. So in some ways, a yield curve that is low nominally across short and long is a consistent curve saying, Money is tight in the real economy and in the financial system all across the, the thing. Low interest rates are a signal that money is insufficient. But we seem to be getting a contradictory signal from what you were saying, the, uh, the CLOs, the leverage loans. And so in your article at Alhambra Investments, and it's called, Don't Low Rates on Junk Bonds Mean Fed-Fueled Credit Bubble? No, precisely the opposite. You published that on July 7th. And you give us an example of what happened in the 1920s that in fact, even then, during the worst liquidity crisis we can imagine until recently, we saw something similar. What did we see then? Yeah, I mean, nobody would, would mistake the 1930s with the credit bubble, right? I mean, <laughs> there's no way you could classify the period of the Great Depression as a credit bubble or the Federal Reserve being successful at generating one. So therefore, okay, whatever we think of, whatever happened in the 1930s, it was not a credit bubble. Now, the 1920s, that was a, maybe the best example of a credit bubble we've ever seen or ever, we've ever had. You had rapid monetary growth a lot of which was funneled into New York City in the securities business, not just stocks, but also bonds. So you have massive issuance of bonds and stocks and all these things throughout the 1920s. But then we get to the Great Collapse, and in the 1930s, all of that stuff kind of goes away. The monetary system shrinks. Uh, the Federal Reserve doesn't respond the way it should respond. And as a consequence, you look at issuance, especially as a proxy for you know, what's going on in, in, the, in the overall securities market, they, in the 1930s, looks nothing like the 1920s. So again, you're never going to mistake the decade of the 1930s for a credit bubble. Now, here's the twist. What happened to interest rates during that non-credit bubble Great Depression 1930s? People would think maybe it's the opposite. Maybe the rates would be high because you know, nobody wants the most risk, risky assets. But what they're doing is they're conflating credit risk and liquidity risk. When liquidity risk is paramount, as it was in the 1930s, what happens is, especially financial participants, 
are willing to hold the most liquid types of investments. And that includes not just safe investments, but also risky investments. So in that case, what we're talking about is not, okay, um, risky corporate bonds versus U.S. government bonds as two, dis- two, two different classes. What we're talking about is bonds versus illiquid investments. So financial participants in the 1930s, because of the lack of liquidity, were holding liquid assets, marketable assets of all kinds. That was a demand for them. So interest rates on any kind of bond, any kind of marketable instrument fell as as a consequence of those liquidity preferences, which were expressed on the other side in the lack of bank lending, private placements, the other kinds of you know loans and investments that are illiquid in nature. So what we're seeing in both both sets of interest rates, you know whether it's corporate bonds, whether it's U.S. government bonds, rates falling are consistent with the liquidity preferences that tell you that money is tight in the real economy. Low rates are not stimulus. They signal quite the opposite. Oh, actually, what we see and what we find is that in the CLO leverage loan markets, the only reason they exist is to make the illiquid liquid. So we, CLOs are nothing like, are no, are no different than what subprime mortgages had been a decade ago or more than a decade and a half ago. It was a way to take the illiquid stuff and turn it into liquid stuff. That's why there's a preference for CLOs and securitized junk bonds because those are marketable. What we don't see and what, you know, the graphs that you always prepare, Emil, the show bank lending, the illiquid types of investment has been, has dropped off just like in the 1930s. Banks are, are, are preferring liquid marketable securities. And it doesn't matter if they're risky or not, credit risky or not, because they're at least marketable. The, you know, when, when the environment is, you know, one of monetary insufficiency or, or tightness, however you want to characterize it, you want to hold a liquid instrument because you expect that, you know, at some point you're going to have to sell your asset because, you know, there's always this mismatch between borrowing in the short run, rolling over funding versus these longer term assets that you have to hold on to. That's why we have these liquidity pres- liquidity preferences in asset markets because f- financial firms, especially banks, are concerned because of the lack of liquidity in the system, because of monetary insufficiency and tightness, they want to hold all liquid investments for that. God forbid the, the, the day when we get another global financial crisis and they have to liquidate at a moment's notice because you can't get caught holding illiquid assets in that situation. That was the lesson everybody learned 1929, 30, 31, and 32. And it was the same lesson many people, at least inside the system, learned in 2007, 8, and 2009. And that's what we see in these lower marketable bond rates. They're signaling that there's a liquidity preference where the financial system is choosing to hold the most liquid forms of assets while eschewing all the illiquid forms of assets, which are the ones we don't really see because there's no market form. There's no price form. They're just, you know, loans on, on a bank balance sheet that, that no longer are. How do we recognize if this situation was correcting itself? I'm imagining that these rates would start to rise, but, we don't want to see them spike, right? If it's a spiking rate that's signaling there's some sort of disorder, uh, there's a sell-off taking place of assets. Uh, but so if things were fixed, would we then see the, the risky bonds for risky corporate bonds start rising gradually? 
It depends on what you mean by fixed, <laughs> right? I mean, no, I, I think what you're I'm saying, you know, if we, if we actually get out of a deflationary environment and start to convert into an inflationary environment or even just a growth environment, that doesn't have to be inflationary. Growth environment. Yeah, what does that look like? And I what think what it, it looks look like, like is the 1950, late 40s and 1950s, where we never saw this massive bond router, you know, bond massacres, they called in 94. We never saw that. It was a gradual transition from low rates to rising rates, steadily rising rates. And you're right, Emil. What we're worried about, what we're really concerned about is a massacre. We, want, we don't want a disorderly transition from one thing to another because that could be harmful. But that never happened historically, and I don't, I don't think there are any real instances of where it did happen that way. Usually it's a long, drawn-out process because these kinds of titanic forces, I mean, deflationary, inflationary, these are not things that happen overnight. There's something that there are factors that have to develop over a, a significant amount of time. So it's not like, you know, you're flipping a switch. Deflation ended yesterday, so today the bond market is going to sell off in an in, in absolutely biblical fashion. That's not what we should we should expect at all, at least consistent with historical experience. Well, the good news, Jeff, is is that the Fed and other central banks, including Australia, is on top of this. They are going to prevent that spike from occurring in bond yields by implementing something called yield curve control or pegging yields. You wrote an article, a couple of articles this week. We're going to discuss one of them where you talk about the yield cap history and you say that it's pretty solid, but it goes against what central banks are trying to do. Can you talk a little bit first, what is this new policy program that's being percolated? You know, they're, they're, it's trial balloons are being sent up. Australia, I had no idea. They had already implemented some form of it. What is it? What can we expect later this year, most likely from the Federal Reserve? Well, in my opinion, yield caps nothing more than the same, abs- same absurd uh, puppet show that you know quantitative easing is or anything else that central, central banks do. What it really is, is it's supposed to reassure market participants and the public at large, I suppose, that they should never fear rising interest rates. That Look, they say low rates are stimulus, therefore you never have to worry about raise, r- rising rates, which will choke off that stimulus. That's the mainstream theory. And of course, as we've shown, as Milton Friedman said, his History has always shown that's never true. In fact, if central banks were being successful, and they know this, yields would rise. And they wouldn't rise all at once, as we just said. They would rise gradually as in this transition between a deflationary period, a lack of growth period, and a growth period, or even an inflationary period. We would see a more gentle transition. And we should welcome that kind of environment because actual economic growth People don't really care about bond yields during that situation. There's opportunity in the real economy. So who cares what treasury rates are doing? But, not, but you know, central bankers have got to look at it the other way. They've got to come up with some idea to make you think that they're in charge here. And so they've created this boogeyman that rising, rapidly rising interest rates are our biggest fear right now, which is totally crap. It's not our biggest fear right now. And as you mentioned, the Bank of, Reserve Bank of Australia implemented yield yield caps in March, but they haven't had to buy any bonds since March. So what the hell good is the yield cap? Again, it's it's more empty promises, right? Well, everyone knew that they were serious, so they weren't going to even bother testing them. It's a uh, self-reinforcing policy. Yeah, right. Look, we we tamed the market, and now the market obeys us, which is, again, it's, it's, it's ahistoric. There's no evidence that that's actually the case. 
And, you know, you go back to history and the U.S. experience with yield caps in the, in the 1940s and uh, into the early 1950s, it was the same exact thing. You had this underlying deflationary environment where the Federal Reserve kept saying, we're worried this is going to turn into inflation. We're worried this is going to turn into a bond drop. We're worried about all of these things. I think people believe that the Fed's inflationary bias is a product of the 1970s and the great inflation, when in fact, its entire history has been all about seeing inflation that doesn't exist. 1937 is a perfect example. The Federal Reserve provoked a depression within a depression because they feared inflation in 1937 that absolutely could not have happened. They raised the reserve requirement. They, they monkeyed around with a bunch of other things, monetary things, thinking that they had allowed monetary inflation to happen. When, again, the bond market had told them via low interest rates, no, there's no monetary sufficiency here. There's no chance of an inflationary breakout. So the Fed has this inflation, all central banks have this inflationary bias almost as part of their DNA. And so they're always seeing this inflation monster where it doesn't exist because they don't understand the bond market too. They refuse to accept that the bond market is telling them what the actual system is seeing and thinking rather than believing what they believe that they control the bond market. So that's really what yield caps are about, is imposing their control, or at least a lot of letting the public or leading the public to believe they're imposing their control on something which is actually telling them they're not, they have no control. And so they don't want the bond yields to rise. But as Richard Fisher pointed out, the bond market is buying the bonds. They want to keep the yields. Well, they don't care about keeping the yields low. They're buying the bonds anyway. And the central bank is saying, well, we're not going to let you not buy them. Or It doesn't make any sense. The market is yeah. already <laughs> pushing in the direction away from the ceiling. That was kind of Rich Fisher's point, right? He's like, why are we buying bonds that the market's already buying? I mean, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be supporting markets where people are selling. And again, the, reason the real reason why they're buying bonds that the market obviously can't get enough of is because they're trying to fool people into believing they're in control of the situation. When in fact, again, Reserve Bank of Australia hasn't had to buy a single bond in months. Why? Because the market says by buying the safest and most liquid instruments that there is no monetary flood. There is no inflation coming. It's not coming. So the, I, the whole idea of imposing yield caps on that situation is completely absurd. That's the key, right? Because the central bank has printed a ton of money. That'll be inflationary. But the, but the bond markets say, no, it's not going to be. We need as much liquidity as we can get our, onto our balance sheet, and we're going to be buying these things. Um, let's yeah, you, talk. You've, you've played the game of printing money, but it doesn't actually work. You know, that's a nice story for the financial media, but on the ground, it's not sufficient. You know, the puppet show and the fairy tales and all the stuff that the Fed does with quantitative easing and its level of bank reserves don't actually impact the system. Therefore, the bond market is saying, yeah, that's great. It plays well on television, but we need some actual money down here and we're not seeing it. I want people to get a better sense of what happened in the 1940s in the United States. Can you, I'm going to show the graph that is in your article. And can you talk a little bit about how the yield curve control was implemented and then how it was undone at just one of the maturities the inflation that was taking place at that time due to a supply shock, the recession that followed immediately after, and then how the, the Federal Reserve was selling back 
all the bonds that they had been buying because they were worried about inflation. Just give, give a little bit of an explanation of what happened. Well, what happened was World War II. And, you know, on the federal government to fight World War II knew it was going to have to expand its deficit and, and borrow an, an absolutely epic amount of, through the bond market. And so what the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury Department did was they got together in early 1942 and decided how they were going to manage this, this absolutely massive uh, deficit need. And what they wanted, what they ended up compromising on was this, this uh, series or tiers of yield caps on U.S. government bonds and uh, short-term debt, too. They started out with Treasury bills. They'd say, well, the Federal Reserve will cap the yield on Treasury bills at three-eighths of a percent. And I believe that also applied to certificates of indebtedness, which are nothing more than Treasury bills that pay a coupon. So, you know, the Fed ended up, because they're enforcing the three-eighths of a percent yield on on the short-term debt, they ended up buying a lot of that debt because uh, the, the federal government was issuing it. And then they, they tiered the, the, the capped rates on notes and bonds further down the curve. So that when they got out to the, to the to long-term treasury bonds, the cap was at two and a half percent. Now that isn't very much more than where yields had been throughout the rest of the 1930s and the great depression. So the, those were deflationary yields in the bond market on, on long-term bond, bond assets. When you look at the Federal Reserve's purchase history of those bonds, specifically those bonds, what you find is that throughout the entire period where they had supposedly capped yields, it was almost a 10-year period there, in only one instance did they ever actually buy a lot of bonds to quote-unquote enforce that cap. And I've circled it right there on the chart. It was that, that around 19, late 46 and early 47 where yields started to move up a little bit. Now, on they removed the cap on the bill rates in, I believe it was July 1947, which bill rates then started to rise to normalize with the supply and conditions. But long-term rates, including long-term rates on corporate bonds, municipal bonds, all sorts of other bonds, they really didn't move that much. So when you look at what the bond market was saying is like, okay, yeah, we have a little bit of, 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 of positive momentum perhaps, but it certainly was not an inflationary signal by any means, especially when you compare where rates were in, in the middle 40s where, compared to where they were in the 1920s, for example, when there was massive monetary growth. And so what we have is, again, the Fed with its inflationary bias in 1947, buying up a huge amount of, of U.S. government long bonds for essentially no reason. They're, they're, they're fearing an inflation that the bond market was telling them, it's not here, it doesn't exist. And as you said, Almost immediately, as soon as that bond buying program ended in 48 and 49, they started selling them back to the market because the market was demanding the overwhelming demand for U.S. government bonds since there was no inflation. In fact, there was a pretty severe recession in 48 and 49 and that there was no reason for the Fed to have bought them in the first place. Now, Jeff, I know a lot of our listeners have the 1940s memorized down pat. And they're going to say that you're not being uh, accurate because there was inflation that was surging in the late mid, mid to late 40s. But the inflation you're talking about and the inflation that the, bond, the long-term bond market cares about is persistent monetary inflation, not a supply shock. Were the short-term bill yields reflecting that near-term supply inflation shock while the long-term bonds were saying transitory? 
No, I think billiards are saying the same thing. Billiards are simply normalizing to the fact that over the preceding uh, six-year period, the federal government deficit and, and their amount of marketable debt had exploded. That's all it was. The, the bill yields were normalizing to supply and demand. Without the Fed buying up uh, marginal amounts of bills, they stopped doing it in, the, in, the, in you know, 1947. That's all it was. It wasn't an inflationary signal. It was a supply-demand signal. That's why we, we know the long-term bond yields were telling you that, yeah, that's all it is. The, the bond market is beginning to normalize to this post-war, post-deficit uh, uh, binge environment. But it wasn't inflationary, even though, as you pointed out, in 1947, I think it was, maybe early 48, the CPI was going, was going up at double digits. I mean, the inflation really got high around that period, which, of course, I'm sure that the, uh, the uh, in fact, I know for, I've read a, a significant amount of literature from the period, the economists at the Fed, the policymakers at the Fed, all thought that was massive monetary inflation. So again, they're not paying attention to the bond market when the bond market is saying, especially longer-term yields, no matter what was going on in the short-term bill rates, longer-term yields were saying, no, this is a transitory inflation spike. It's not going to last. Trust us. And the Fed didn't. Guess which one turned out to prove to be right? Yet again, the bond market was right and the Fed was wrong. The Fed always sees this inflation monster, but if you don't see it in the bond market, it's nothing more than a figment of a bunch of economists' imaginations. That's, it's all it is. And so that's what's really what's really interesting about that the yield cap episode in the 1940s is that it's it's almost a perfect analog to where we are now. We're in a deflationary background, a deflationary environment of the last 13 years, where bond yields have been consistent in describing it the situation that way. And how many times have we heard? I mean, we talk about this all the time, Emil. How many times have we heard along the way? Oh, bond route, inflation's coming. It's it's. I mean, QE's definite money printing. All, all this stuff. I mean, it's over and over and over again. And yet bond yields, the long-term yields in particular, are consistent. The yield curve is consistent in saying no, no, no. And what Milton Friedman's point was, the overall overall point was, that when you look at interest rates this way, when you frame them under, you know, according to the interest rate fallacy and realize the fallacy isn't the bond market, the fallacy is the central banks and their theories, the bond market is what you should be looking at to tell you, regardless of what the Fed is doing, the reactive Fed is doing, this is how it's going to be. If yields are low and they remain low, that's not a good sign. That's certainly not an inflationary sign. And therefore, as Richard Fisher said, why is the Fed buying bonds the market overwhelmingly demands anyway? Well, in a couple of uh, weeks or months, we're going to hear about how successful the yield curve control is because it's keeping rates low. So people who are listening to this can count on hearing that, but now they'll understand what the argument against that supposition is. That's Jeff, the thing right? with monetary policy, right? I mean, they're the most successful programs ever done, but yet we have to keep doing more of them. You know, it's, maybe that's the real paradox here. These things work so well, you have to do them constantly. You know, I'd love to see the central bank set the yield curve limit somewhere below where the bond market already is. But I guarantee you, they're going to send it just above just like how they were moving the federal funds target around. And then they said, all right, we can't control this anymore. Even though we invented this money, we're going to put a range 
around it. And guess where they put the range? They put the range around where the market already was. The Fed, the Fed and any central, they're all, they're followers. They're, they're not proactive. Monetary policy is always reactive. That's what your uh, colleague on yesterday's uh, webinar said, uh, Mr. Brent Johnson. And he said the exact same thing. Jeff, you write not only for Alhambra Investments, but for Real Clear Markets. And at Real Clear Markets, you wrote up a follow-up on your very popular articles about socialism and communism. And we were just talking about the beginning of a golden age, about the end of World War II. The golden age had begun. The economy took off from there in the post-World War II order. But nothing goes on forever. It comes to an end, including capitalism, apparently. That's what the Marxists say. I've been writing about this alarming trend towards socialism for many years now. And, and a lot of, you know, in the early years when I started to bring it up, people were like, why are you writing about this? I mean, it's just absurd. Socialism and communism have failed everywhere they've been tried in history. Nobody would ever believe that these are valid theories and they would never be resurrected from the dustbin of history. And I, what I would say, you know, what I was realizing is that <clears throat> I don't think many people really understand what the Marxists truly believe and what's going on today and how these things actually play into each other. The lack of economic growth since the first global financial crisis in 2008 plays right into the hands of the socialists. Yes, the socialists, the Marxists, they're aware that the Soviet Union failed. They're aware of what's going on in China. They're also aware that the current state of, of modern human society, we are the wealthiest that we have ever been in history. They know all these things. So when you point these things out, you're not telling them anything they don't already believe. And it all goes back to what Karl Marx originally said. What he said was that there was this possibility um, under the feudal system, the, the subsistence agricultural system where everybody was a peasant and you were doomed to a, a life of subsistence agriculture, there was no possibility of achieving this, this, this paradise on earth, this, this potential utopia. What he said was the Industrial Revolution was the way that we could get there. We could use machines and technology and harness their efforts if they would only be equitably uh, made available equitably, then we could create this this idyllic, absolutely um, perfect human society. But in order to get there, we had to let capitalism run its course. We had to let the Industrial Revolution play out under the capitalist agenda to create all this wealth, to create all this technology, so that it could then support the utopia once we didn't take the socialist revolution. So what, we, what, what Marx was envisioning was that we would have these wealthy, these technologically advanced, industrialized Western societies, the workers in them would rise up, they would take over all this wealth that the capitalists had created, they would appropriate it, make them, um, bring them under the, the control of all workers, who would then and undertake the socialist revolution, which would result in these perfect commune, flat hierarchy society, freed from want, freed from privation, freed from duty and work. That was the goal. Jeff, why do people even imagine or why do they even bother fantasize about creating a utopia here on Earth? Haven't we had enough human history to review to see that that's simply uh, beyond our capability? I mean, we've even had it in movies, right? We had The Matrix. And what did Agent Smith tell Morpheus? He told them 
he told them that they created a perfect utopia and the humans rejected it. It's simply not in our nature to live in a utopia. And you can look at all the religious texts and the philosophies, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there was a philosophy that said, we've reached a point where we can't have a utopia. Yeah, there's a significant strain of thought that developed in the 19th century uh, philosophical uh, a movement that Marx and Engels are definitely a part of that believe that humanity itself would evolve along with technology. And so the fact that we're, humans were incapable of achieving utopia before the 19th, the pre-enlightenment uh, humans couldn't do it beforehand. That didn't, that just simply mean that simply meant that humanity needed to evolve along with technology. That once human beings had evolved, they would then be capable of achieving the socialist dream and socialist revolution so long as they kept in accordance with what Marx said. And the irony of, of communism in the 20th, 20th century is that it took root in all the wrong places, including Russia. What Marx, again, what Marx said was the West needed to do it first. The wealthy societies need to transition first so that there would be enough wealth and technology to support the utopia. Instead, what happened is you had these communist revolutions like Russia in 1917 in pre-industrial societies, which created all sorts of problems. In fact, Karl Marx would have abhorred, he would have been absolutely upset and, and uh, apoplectic about the Russian Revolution because the, Russians were, the Russian economy was not ready for the socialist transition. And in fact, the, the, the Bolshevik and Menshevik leaders who took over in the Soviet Union agreed. They realized they were jumping the gun. They knew that they were doing it, but they, what happened was that World War I had presented them with a unique opportunity that they couldn't let go to waste. But then what to do? What happens? You've now created the socialist revolution in a, in a society that isn't ready for a socialist revolution. So what Lenin did was in 1921, he created what he called the National Economic Plan, which began this series of economic plans, where he thought, well... We're not ready for a, a true socialist revolution, so then we'll use our central planning skills and we'll go backwards a bit into a capitalist state and let capitalism create enough wealth while we already have our socialist infrastructure in place, which is, by the way, in these transition periods, it's always a brutal authoritarian regime. So Lenin started, he put the cart before the horse, he, he implemented the brutal authoritarian regime and then allowed some capitalism back into the economy in order to try to, to move Russia's economy closer to its terminal wealth point, which then could transition into this Marxist paradise of utopian worker society. You know, it, it just disqualifies it as a, an example right there, because you said the Soviet, well, the Russia wasn't ready for communism. And instead of waiting, it wasn't just me. That was they said that the, yeah, both exactly. the Bolsheviks. I mean, they are great. They were they, everybody knew it that back in the nineteenth, the revolution. Hey, we know Russia's not ready. What are we going to do about it? <laughs> well, it would have been, and so what they would have done if they were true messiahs, if they were true prophets, they would have said, "It's not ready. We're not ready. We're going to let somebody else in the future take care of this." But human nature the desire for power said, <laughs> we're not going to let this opportunity pass me by. So they took control to be in charge. And that, that desire for power, that desire almost disqualifies communism in my mind, because eventually it's supposed to be where communism is a very flat structure. 
And there are no leaders per se, let's say technocrats that manage the system, but there's no power structure. And that seems to run completely counter, not just to human experience, but to experience throughout nature. It also should have been a signal to them that these these Marxist workers' revolutions didn't happen where they were supposed to happen, right? Mm -hmm. The workers were supposed to rise up in the West. And and what the Marxists would tell you is that, oh, the the systems of historical oppression kept it from happening. When what really happened is what you were just talking about, is that people in the West realized that there is no limit to capitalist affluence. Therefore, they were willing to, to accept the capitalist system because, as somebody once said, I think it was JFK, rising tide lifts all boats. They realized that, look, so long as this thing works, it works really well, and there's no limit to wealth and affluence and society's progress. So why the hell would we want to stop it at a predetermined point and then try to go into this utopian society that is against all historical experience? And that's really the point I'm trying to make here is that in all of these examples, and we include communist China in the same example, who, by the way, got in the same the same same exact situation as Russia, the Chinese under Mao, uh, they went underwent their socialist revolution too soon. They jumped the gun there too. China was by no means an industrial wealthy society. In fact, they were worse off than the Russians were in 1917. But the point is, what the what the Marxists have to do is transition from a capitalist society to this this workers' paradise utopia, and that requires this brutal authoritarian regime to do it. And, on, and that brutal authoritarian regime erases all prior history. They start at year zero and everything goes forward from there. And the, what makes communism so evil is that they essentially lock human society into that situation under the brutal authoritarian regime because there is no utopia. There is no end point where the authoritarians say, we've made it to the paradise, we're giving up all authority. So as soon as you undergo, whether it's, it's, it's too soon or at the right time, whatever the hell the right time might be, as soon as you undergo the socialist transition, hand everything over to these small elite group of revolutionaries and give them authoritarian, arbitrary authoritarian power, they're never going to give it up because they can't. There is no utopia. There is no society on the other side where it's completely equitable, flat structure, perfect commune. That's really the point here is that it doesn't, that's the, that's the theory is that once you go into the transition, whether you started early, whether you start at the right time, you're stuck with the, always the transition. That was the real lesson from the Soviet Union and the real lesson from China that we're seeing today. Yes, they, neither China nor the Soviet Union were true communism. According to the Marxist de- definition of doctrines, they were not true communism. But so what? They were stuck in the authoritarian transition for decade after decade after decade. And that's really the issue here. Jeff, can I delineate a little bit between communism and socialism? Because one of our YouTube commenters made the point not to conflate communism with uh, Scandinavian-style socialism. Socialism is a fungible word, um, and I think a lot of people use it inappropriately, certainly the way the Marxists would view it. Scandinavia is not socialist by any means, according to the Marxist definition. Uh, send us what what the so, what people call socialism of you know Sweden and places like that is really just an enlarged safety net of a capitalist society. Now, what some socialists would say is that that's a necessary slow transition between a, a true capitalist society on the road 
toward a true communist society as more and more is turned over to the centralized authority because Sweden has achieved its terminal wealth stage. It's created enough wealth that they can begin transitioning into this redistribution, redistributive period, hopefully under democratic terms, but really knowing that at some point it's going to lead, if it allowed to continue, to its brutal authoritarian state. That's really the, I mean, there is no democratic transition between uh, capitalism and communism because communism proceeds under its false premise that there is a terminal level of wealth, that capitalism can only go so far and exploit so many workers before it exhausts itself in, in, in this, this massive inequality that triggers this workers' uprising. It's, again, it, why didn't it happen when Marx said it was going to happen? Why didn't it happen in the 1930s and thereafter? The reason is because most people, most sane people, most honest people realize that there is no limit to human creation and human wealth and that capitalism for all its flaws there are a number of flaws it's messy it's noisy it's 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 not predictable at some points but for all its flaws it's the best system that has ever developed and it has allowed human society to advance far beyond certainly where Karl Marx thought it would stop certainly where Vladimir Lenin thought it would stop certainly much farther than Mao thought yet here we are because of the lack of growth over the 13 years, it looks like to a lot of people, including true Marxists, that we've, Marx wasn't wrong, he was just early. And so, yeah, okay, it didn't happen in the 30s, but here it is, we're finally hit late stage, end stage capitalism. It's time to transition into that brutal authoritarian regime to take over, to begin appropriating all wealth and therefore redistributing it until we get to that perfect utopian, flat-structured communist society on the other side. If you get your, your interpretation of what's going on in the economy from the mainstream financial media or for Jay Powell or Janet Yellen, remember, whoever it is, all of this stuff seems really confusing. Why, why are people turning to, why are young people especially turning to socialism? Don't they know how good they have it? Don't they know that the unemployment rate's the best it's been in 50 years? Don't they know the economy's been booming? What, what is it? What is it turning people into all these, Marx, into the, the, the Marxist direction? And the answer is, when you look at it and say, well, the Fed doesn't do a good job, the bond market is telling you that. The Fed hasn't performed up to snuff. The economy hasn't actually grown in the last 12 years. Stop listening to central bankers who have a vested interest in telling you that, it, that, that all their monetary policies are in order, in order enormously successful. If you realize those two things, suddenly you start to understand why socialism and Marxism has become such a, I don't want to say popular, but you know, it's become at least plausible to a huge subset, especially the younger generations, who look at capitalism as a, since 2008 and think, this is this is this really is end stage. This is it. We've we've Marx was right. We've hit the limit. Therefore, maybe we should start listening to these other people because it at least sounds better. You know, equity distribution. We, it's not really about free stuff. It's about flat structure in society and not and being freed from having to work and freed from having to worry about food, free from student loans and all these other things. It sounds like a plausible direction to move toward. Even if you don't really want to move all the way or really understand and, or entail, what, what everything that entails and what that might mean, you're at least sympathetic to listening in a way that, you, that you know, under normal economic conditions where we, if we actually had economic growth, they probably wouldn't. 
There would be no need to. I mean, just look at the numbers, you know, the, the baseline chart. If the Great Recession had actually been a recession, GDP would be five trillion, five and a half trillion more than it is right now. There's a hell of a lot fewer socialists on, with that five trillion in GDP. That's it's about really 25% that of the economy, the United States yeah. economy. It's a massive, massive amount. And again, it all plays into what the socialists are saying. What they're saying, what they aren't saying is a bunch of free stuff to a bunch of whiny crybabies who don't know how good they have it. What they're saying is, yes, capitalism creates wealth, but now capitalism has achieved its final stage. It's time to turn over everything to the revolutionaries to make it make society equitable. And uh, there's 520,000 followers of the Reddit thread for late capitalism. So <laughs> I did not know that, but yeah. that's not surprising to me. Not surprising at all. Jeff, let's talk again next week, see how the economy's doing, if it's improving in any way, and uh, talk about these bigger social issues as well. All right, take care, Emil.